Hello, I'm Aaron Lohr, and this is the Endocrine News Podcast. Today, we're celebrating 100 years since the discovery of insulin. We're going to be talking about the importance of this landmark discovery, how it shaped our understanding and treatment of diabetes, and how it sets the stage for the exciting breakthroughs of tomorrow. Joining me is Dr. Elizabeth Stevens, an endocrinologist with the Providence Medical Group in Portland, Oregon. Thank you for coming on the podcast today, Dr. Stevens. You're welcome. Thank you for inviting me. So this year, we are celebrating 100 years since the discovery of insulin. Why? Is this discovery worthy of celebration? Well, you know, it was interesting to reflect on this because I think for many of us, insulin is just kind of an accepted medication that's been available for such a long time. But, you know, I have many people that I see and take care of who recall when, you know, the insulins that we had were much less effective than the current ones that we have today. And then you know, just thinking back to when insulin was discovered, you know, diabetes used to be a death sentence. Mm. People did not survive having diabetes because there really was no effective therapy. If you go back and look at pictures, it was just awful what people had to struggle through because insulin was not available as a medication. The only way to treat diabetes was basically to limit the amount of sugar that you ate. And so people became quite wasted and thin and often, you know, were somewhat starving to death. So the discovery of insulin was really a life-saving medication and has had such a huge impact in terms of our ability to thrive and live with diabetes. And now, of course, with all the newer insulins that we have and the technologies, it just made diabetes, living with diabetes so much easier. But it's easy to forget that, (laughs) you know, not that long ago, people died of diabetes because they just couldn't take a medicine that fixed it. Yeah, as time passes, it's remarkable what you can end up just sort of taking for granted. But exactly, times like this help us remember how important this discovery was. Yeah, Um, and yeah, when people think about insulin, they're going to think about diabetes. So, what's the connection? How does diabetes affect insulin production? And and you mentioned that was a death sentence. You know, what might happen to the body? You know, if they're not able to get access to the insulin that they need. The two primary kinds of diabetes are type one and type two diabetes. People with type 1 diabetes don't make insulin, and insulin is really the hormone that helps unlock the door so that your cells can use glucose. If you don't have insulin around and you have type 1 diabetes, it's really hard for your body to use glucose as a fuel. And so without that fuel source, you become depleted. It's just important for brain function, for all kinds of function. And so without insulin, with type 1 diabetes, people have high blood sugars and you know can get quite sick and ultimately can die if they go for a long enough period of time without it. People with type 2 diabetes, it's a little bit of a different story oftentimes. It's less of a deficiency of insulin. It's more of a resistance. So the insulin they make doesn't work as well. Often their body compensates by making more and more insulin just to so that they have more around to work. And over time, ultimately, that often declines and fails. Their bodies just aren't able to keep up with that demand. And often people type 2 diabetes eventually end up needing insulin also, but it's usually more of a progressive course, whereas people with type 1 diabetes, and it can be at any age, I think a lot of times often there's a misconception that type 1 is a diagnosis in kids, people at all ages can get type 1 diabetes and become insulin deficient. 
But with type 2 diabetes, often it's a slower course, whereas type 1, it's often a little bit more abrupt. So I appreciate you sharing that type 1 diabetes, most people think about a younger population, and I appreciate you sharing that. That's not always the case. You know, what are some reasons why someone might end up with a type 1 diabetes diagnosis, maybe even later in life? So we know that type 1 diabetes can happen in kids. It used to be called juvenile onset diabetes, and that was sort of the, the kid association that we've learned over the years just isn't necessarily always true. The cause of type 1 diabetes is still not completely known. We know that there's definitely a genetic component, and so there's something that we often inherit or acquire that ends up affecting our ability to make insulin. And it's still a very uncommon diagnosis, but we don't totally know clearly what that genetic kind of target is or are able to screen always for it. It tends to run in families, but again, it's not very common just like a lot of diseases, there's the genetic component and there's an environmental. So, so something triggers it in the environment that causes your body to just stop making insulin. So it's a combination of both of those things. What the environmental trigger is, is also a bit of a mystery. We know that there are infections, stressors, often there are associations with people having these experiences and ultimately developing diabetes that requires insulin, but it's not clear, like you can't predict, you know, if there's a flu that there's going to be this huge spike in type 1, but often we do see more type 1 onset in people around kind of infections and things. Earlier on in our conversation, you talked about how we have these different kinds of insulin. And so can you talk a little bit about these different kinds of insulin? I know there's insulin analogs. So what's going on with all these? The design of insulin was really, um, at least recently, has been more of an effort to put together an insulin regimen or routine that's trying to duplicate what people who don't have diabetes, what their bodies make. 40 years ago, we didn't have as many options in terms of insulins, but these days we really do. So generally kind of the big concepts are you have long acting insulin, which essentially is taken usually once or twice a day. It, its function is to really control glucose levels between meals and overnight. If you don't have diabetes, your body makes insulin continuously and just varies the amount that it produces based on your needs. So you eat something, you need more insulin, you're sleeping, you're not eating, you don't need as much insulin. So that's what the long acting insulin is supposed to help with. It's just kind of glucose production happening at rest. So that's the long acting insulin. With meals, what we usually give people is meal, is meal insulin. So people dose their insulin when they eat carbohydrates or starches. And they vary it depending on how much they eat. Because that's what your body, if you don't have diabetes, does. You eat cake, you need more insulin, and your body makes more insulin. So we're, we're hoping that people, through education, learn how to adjust their insulin based on how much starch or carbohydrate they eat. So there's long-acting insulins, and then there's short-acting insulins. The insulin analogs are kind of the newer insulins that have taken, what they've done is they've taken human insulin and altered it so it just acts a bit faster. In people who don't have diabetes, because you're making insulin, secreting it right into your bloodstream, it acts really quickly. For people who are taking insulin injections, it takes longer to work because you have to put it in your skin. It has to be absorbed into your bloodstream. So it just takes longer. And so with these rap more rapid acting insulins, the thought is, is that they can more quickly act to bring your blood sugar down after you've eaten carbohydrates. So the insulin analogs are modifications of human insulin so it can act more quickly. So with all these different kinds of insulin that are available, how difficult is it for you as a clinician or for others who are clinicians to decide you know, which option is best for their patient? I think sometimes it is overwhelming for 
providers because there's so many choices in the diabetes world. There's lots of different insulins, you know, faster ones, longer ones, shorter ones. I mean, combinations, there's lots of different choices. Um, and often that's why people come to see an endocrinologist or a specialist is because we do have a lot of experience with insulin and often can really tailor it to what people need or really tailored often to people's lifestyles. For example, some people have a schedule where they don't eat until dinner time. That may not be a helpful choice, but you know, that may be just the routine that they have. Those are people that are not going to do well with an insulin that doesn't kind of match that routine. And so we'll often look at how people eat, how people live. Are they consistent with what they eat or does it vary all the time? Are they snackers? So um, often that can be a really critical component to deciding what regimen is going to work for people. And luckily these days we have lots of different choices to choose from. So it, there is the ability to really get kind of a little bit more exacting. So in the last hundred years, we've not only seen a growth in options of insulin, we've also seen a bit of a boom in diabetes technology and insulin mm -hmm. delivery. What are some of the most exciting and important advancements that you've seen over the years? I think there's been a lot of insulin analogs, tools for administering insulin, you know, like pens and pumps and all of those things are very exciting technology. But I would say in my world, the things that have been most helpful for people are probably continuous glucose monitoring systems. So basically, these are devices that people wear that read their glucose levels in their skin continuously. Um, and so you can get information you know, without having to poke your finger or get blood out of your body um, in order to see what your glucose levels are. And so for a lot of people, that has always been a real challenge for diabetes management. So when they're asleep, they don't know what's happening with their glucose levels. You know, when they're in a meeting or at work, they may not be able to check their glucose levels. Because remember back in the old day, or, you know, not too long ago, the most primary way we had to checking our blood sugars was by poking our finger and getting blood. And then you put it on the strip and your strip would read and it would tell you how much glucose is in your um, bloodstream. And that, that's been a wonderful technology, but you know, it's painful, it's uncomfortable, it's messy. Um, and so the sensors have really, I think, transformed diabetes management to make it easier to make decisions about what you're gonna do because you can see what your glucose level is at that moment. You get a sense of if it's going up or down. And I think just the safety issue has been a huge one too for people because you can program any of these devices to alarm if you're going above or below what's safe for you in terms of your glucose reading. So I would say in my experience right now, that's probably been the technology that's been most transformative. I hear from people all the time saying it's just been such a lifesaver. It's amazing how we keep seeing more and more progressions since the discovery of insulin to today about all these new advances in care. And, yeah. and we know that those breakthroughs are probably going to keep coming in the future. I know we don't have a crystal ball, but you know, what do you see or maybe even hope for in regards to the insulin advancements of tomorrow? If we're just speaking about insulin, maybe separate from technology, I think having insulins that are, again, more rapid acting that act even more like what your body without diabetes does. The insulins we have now are great in terms of, you know, how quickly they act, how long they act, how you can adjust based on what you're eating. But I still think they're often still not as effective, obviously, as people who don't have diabetes. They still just take too long. They still have to be administered by a needle. So I think any way of having insulin acts faster and hopefully at some point can be given without a needle and an injection. That's definitely not something that's immediately on the horizon for sure. 
Sure. Um, there is inhaled insulin, but you know, there's lots of pros and cons to that one. And I also think that in addition to changes in insulin, I think just the technology piece is really going to be probably our path to trying to keep glucose levels in a stable range and um, having technology that can adjust insulin doses based on the glucose readings that you have. So I think technology and insulin changes are both going to be really great. But we can't really have this conversation without also talking a little bit about accessibility and yeah. affordability, not just for insulin, but even some of the texts that we're describing, Ugh. like CGMs. So my understanding is that when insulin was discovered that Dr. Banting had sold the patent rights for $1 because he didn't want access to be a barrier. But obviously the world has changed an awful lot since then. So why is accessibility a problem now? And is there anything that patients and healthcare providers can do to help overcome these barriers? It's a huge issue for people, um, primarily around cost for a lot of these devices and what's covered by different insurance companies. And I think there's a lot of reasons, you know, there's a lot of money to be made. Health is a business. Um, I think there's arguments about, you know, research and development and pharmaceutical costs and that type of thing, but it is, it does feel like insulin's been around for a long enough period of time that um, some of the increases in pricing that we've seen with such a life-saving medication, it's just a little troubling from a business standpoint because sure. uh, people just really don't do well if they don't have the medicine or they can't afford their medicine. So I think, I think the thing that people can do is be informed. There are so many programs and options and opportunities out there for discounts, coupons, that type of thing, talking with your insurance about what formula or what insulin is preferred. It is not an easy path, however. I mean, it takes a person who's pretty engaged, who understands how healthcare works and is willing to often sit on hold um, and wait to get answers to the questions that they have about how they get their insulin covered and which insulin might be more affordable for them. But I would say as much as people can advocate for themselves in that regard and look into options, um, it helps. You know, in our system, we have access to clinical pharmacists who are hugely helpful um, medication assistance programs, which also can be very helpful. So there are ways that you can kind of look into your system to see what's something that you can pay for. But the technology is a huge issue because often that scene is sort of an extra and maybe not as essential. And I would argue that for most people, um, especially living with type 1 diabetes, boy, having a, a continuous glucose monitor, it's hard to not see that as being pretty essential. In terms of Providers, there are lots of opportunities to advocate. Most of our organizations, the Endocrine Society, the American Diabetes Association, all have groups that are advocating federally um, to work on reducing cost. And there has been some headway. Um, there are generic analogs now that are available um, for insulin that have reduced the cost dramatically, but there's still a long way to go. Thank you. And I'm glad you brought some of those resources that are up. And uh, what we'll do, for those of you who are listening to the podcast, if you'd like to know more, we'll include a link in this podcast description to some of those resources and programs for those of you who are looking to uh, overcome some barriers to accessibility and affordability. Uh, we'll include a link to that from the Endocrine Society's website. We have a page to help folks navigate some of those troubled waters. And we'll also include some links about some of the advocacy work that groups like the Endocrine Society and the American Diabetes Association are doing. So if you'd like to learn more, please feel free to visit and click there. And uh, that's all the time we have for today. But I wanted to thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Stevens. You bet. It's my pleasure. Thank you again so much for inviting me. And that's all for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. We'll be celebrating the 100-year anniversary of the discovery of insulin throughout 2021. 
The Endocrine Society will host a number of learning opportunities, including a patient roundtable, webinars, and roundups of the latest insulin research published in our journals. Too much to list here. So please visit our 100 Years of Insulin webpage, which will be continuously updated with new opportunities and resources throughout the year. You can find that page at endocrine.org slash insulin100. That's endocrine.org slash insulin100. If you'd like to hear more episodes of the Endocrine News Podcast, be sure to check us out at endocrine.org slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, thanks for listening. Endocrine News Podcasts are a free service of the Endocrine Society. To learn more or to become a member, visit the Society's website at www.endocrine.org.